Turn on your devices. We are now to the thick of it. So we're into Romans 7, but we're moving into the heart of this incredibly uh, complicated and yet powerful passage. Um, This man was 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighed 220 pounds. He was one of four children. His youth was marked by poor health, particularly debilitating asthma. There was no cure for his asthma. He suffered nighttime attacks of asthma that left his parents wondering if he was going to make it through the night. The experience was like being suffocated uh, or being smothered to death. Uh, Ironically, in spite of his condition, though, however, he had a love for the outdoors. When he was seven years old, he he saw this first dead animal, and he was so intrigued, he just got into zoology and did it for the rest of his life. He loved physical exertion and exercise. He'd go for these long hikes, and he would push himself, and he'd do physical training. And then when he was beat up by two boys, you'd think that would be a cataclysmic event in his life. It actually turned him to boxing, and he got a passion for boxing and got really good at it. He graduated from Harvard. And later in his life, he wrote, looking back on his life, he wrote about his father, and he said, my father was the best man I ever knew. And then he went on to describe himself. He's looking back on his life, and he's trying to summarize what his life was like. And he said, I, I'm nervous and I'm timid. His country made him the 26th, their 26th president. His foreign policy was legendary. Quote, speak softly and carry a big stick. On April 23rd, 1910, he spoke at the University of Paris, and it was a a speech called Citizenship in a Republic. It was a 35-page speech, and on page 7, there's a passage that's captured the hearts and the imaginations of countless, endless multitudes. Theodore Roosevelt said, It is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But he who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, great devotions, who spends himself on the worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, or at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat, end quote. Right? You've heard that before. I hope you have. Romans 7 is calling us to enter the arena. Romans 7 is calling us to a justified life, a gospel life. Romans 7 is calling you to the mud and the sweat and the blood. So I want to welcome you to the heart of Romans 7 as we enter the arena. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. And I'm going to say it. All right, we're going to look at uh, 12, 7 through 12. Here we go. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's pray and, and um, pick, up, pick up where we are. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you, you love us all dearly. You're our good shepherd. Uh, and we pray for this young lady that um, you would encourage her, you would comfort her. Um, we pray that you would uh, strengthen whatever's going on physically. We thank you that she's okay. We thank you for great gifted people like doctors and nurses uh, who can help. And we pray this all in your name. Amen. Okay. All right, y'all. Let's, um, where are we? Are we in Romans 8 or 9? Oh, we're in Romans 7. Let's get to Romans 7. Um, here's the deal. I want you to look at the textual terrain of Romans 7. It's pretty easy to follow. Uh, if you look at Romans 7, 1 through 6, this is part 2. Remember, Paul's asking two major questions about life change in chapter 6. The first was in verse 1. The second was in verse 15. Now, 15 through 23 of chapter 6 is Paul's first answer to that question. His second answer is in 7, 1 through 6. The question is this. What does life change look like in a world without law to control your life? What does life change look like when you're not performing and pleasing and perfecting and proving and protecting yourself? What does life change look like? His first answer is he wrapped his answer in 15 through 23 of Romans 6. He wrapped it in the image of slavery. His second answer, he wraps in the image of marriage, and that's 7, 1 through 6. So now, in verse 7 of chapter 7, what is he doing now? Where are we? Well, we got another question. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? Ah, this is great. Y'all, this is a classic whodunit. Like, who took out the master of the house? The chef? You know, the housekeeper? Who killed so-and-so? That's what's going on here. This is a classic whodunit. Like, who's the real killer? Because does the bad marriage to the law mean that the law is sin? Does, does the need to be released from the old way of the law mean that the law is bad in and of itself? Or if we were to summarize everything that's been said about the law so far, you could kind of think like this. Well, how can the law of God work wrath? What? 4.15. How can it increase sin? 5.20. How does it arouse sinful passage, passions? 7.5. Now, Paul's answer is 7 through 12 of chapter 7. So you see where we are? So we've been following two major questions of life change. In one question, the second question, there were two answers. Now it's like a subpoint of those two answers. So you folks that need to have a map and you need to know where we are, that's where we are. Do you feel better? I do. So let's get going. So is the law sin? That's the question. Is the law sin? Now Paul's quick blunt answer. If you translate into text and it goes like this, hey oh no. Right? If you don't like that one, 
you're a little more refined, and you don't prefer Texan, you look at verse 7. By no means. Okay? Got it? By no means. Or hell no. You take your pick. I prefer the first. You're a little more refined than I am. You stick with the by no means. All right. Paul's longer answer is he unpacks the human dilemma, the universal human dilemma with the law. We are all in a dilemma, and it's universal. Paul's longer answer is also it's bloody in the arena. So those of you that are hesitant to enter the arena, because all of us innately are, we need to remember that in Romans 6 through 8, which is what we've been doing since we started this fall, Paul is trying to tell us with everything he's got, with every persuasive ability with, he has, with every mastery of the Greek language, and with all his religious biblical training, he's trying to encourage us to enter the arena, the arena of a justified life, the arena of a gospel life, and he's trying to persuade us that it's worth it. Those who enter the arena are the ones who are alive. Those who enter the arena are the ones who are healthy. Those who enter the arena are the ones you want to listen to. You don't want to listen to someone who's not bleeding. So what's the universal human dilemma with the law? All right, the law is not sin. He's answered that. Hail, no, right? By no means. His longer answer is, but our relationship with the law is kind of complicated a little bit. It's bloody in the arena. Why? I'm going to give you the answer, and then we're going to kind of hopefully understand it. Here's the answer. His answer is there's a proper use for the law. The law has a proper function. The law has a proper power. So if you misuse it, you use it illegitimately. You use it unlawfully. And he's saying that the proper purpose, the proper function of the law is to reveal you to you. The law was given in the history of salvation for a major driving purpose. To reveal you to you. Look at verse 7. For if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I mentioned this, I think, last year, but I couldn't think of anything else that better describes what we're about to talk about. It's a movie that I don't recommend, so if I mention it, you don't want to go see it because you'll have nightmares for the rest of your life, right? There's a movie called Shutter Island, and the main character, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, makes a gruesome discovery about himself. Um, and you find out this discovery, of course, at the end of the movie, right? Because what did it do? It just changed everything. It changed everything. It changed his life completely, and then it changed the viewer's life because now you're like, i got to watch this stupid movie again because now i got to see it in light of the truth about this guy, this gruesome discovery of this guy, right? But what also happens about this revelation about himself, how it changes this character's life, he's at a crossroads. He's got to make a decision. Does he enter into the real world? By facing the horrible truth about himself. And don't miss this. If he faces the horrible truth about himself, he's set free. He will no longer be institutionally 
insane. And imprisoned, he'll be set free. But if he doesn't face the truth about himself, and he suppresses this horrible, gruesome truth about himself, he will actually become imprisoned in institutionalized insanity. So what will he choose? What does he choose? He chooses Disney World. He chooses Fantasy Island. He refuses to enter the arena. He refuses to enter the real world, and his dear, loyal friend pleads with him, what are you doing? And while the white coats are taking him away, this is what he says. Which is better, to live as a good person in my world or as a monster in yours? The law's purpose is to reveal you to you. Primarily to show us we're not good people. To show us that it's, it's bloody in the arena. I want you to look again at verse 7. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Paul is saying, look, the law is not sin, but I wouldn't know my sin without it. And knowing my sin is a good thing. Knowing my sin is a healing thing. Knowing my sin is a healthy thing. Knowing my sin is a helpful thing. Knowing my sin is real life. Sometimes we need, and you and I need, a loyal friend who will shoot straight with us. Don't we? Sometimes we're so wrapped up in it and we're so out in the weeds, so to speak, that if we don't have a loyal friend who wades into the weeds with us and actually shows us what's going on, we're going to stay in the weeds. I love preaching. Most of the time, right? Um, no preacher I know and that I've read about in all of church history, not one person have I come across that a preacher says, I like criticism. Not one, right? So 100% preachers across the board do not like criticism. John Piper, a great preacher, told a bunch of pastors a while back at a pastor's conference that after a sermon, he can have hundreds and hundreds of people. He has a 3,000, 4,000 member church. He can have hundreds and hundreds of people come up to him after the sermon and just praise him and just say things like, oh man, God used you. That sermon changed my life. Uh, it was amazing how that text came alive and spoke directly to me, Right? He says he can have hundreds of those. And then that one person comes along who drops the criticism or the critique. Hey, you could have handled the text a little differently over here. How come you left this out? And what's that with your voice? You kind of whine. And you blew that illustration. The guy's real name was, and he turns to the pastors and he says, what do you think I thought about and would think about all day and into the next? The 100 compliments or the one criticism? Well, of course we know the answer to that, right? But there are times when preachers need honest feedback. There are times when we want honest feedback because we need to grow and develop and mature and we want to excel and we want to be sharper instruments in God's hands. And we, we want to be restructured and reshaped. And we want to 
grow in the gospel and we want to grow in the craft and we want to grow in the art and we want to grow in the skill of communicating and studying the text and delivering the text. And when, when we want those times and need those times, we need someone to come along who absolutely loves and accepts the preacher for who he is and wants what's best for that preacher and wants to work with them and help him to do that. For me, that someone is my wife Nancy and a handful of others. Do I want that from the rest of you? Just lie to me. (laughs) Please, just lie to me. Now here's the point. In God's hand, the law is not there to ultimately hurt you, but heal you, help you. In God's hands, the law is designed to reveal you to you, not to hurt ultimately, but to heal. Enter the arena. How does the law reveal you to you? How does the law properly function in our life in such a way that it actually brings ultimate healing and not ultimate hurt? That's the pretty good question. So when you look at verse 7, again, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So knowing sin has a comprehending component to it, right? There's a mental light to it. There's an understanding that's involved. There's a sense in which it becomes clear to your mind. And that's why Paul continues in verse 7 by saying, look, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So he now knows what coveting is. The law actually brings light to his mind and clarity to his understanding And he begins to see and understand, this is what sin is. So the law, when it reveals you to you, its first thing it does is it defines sin for us. It shows us this is what sin is. It gives you the contours and the textures and the colors of it. I would not have known what it was that the law had not said. Right? But then Paul goes further. He goes beyond defining. Do you see that? He gets more personal. Knowing sin has this experiential component. It has a comprehending component and an experiential component. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That's a weird word. First, here's the first thing I want you to notice. Notice the word sin. Find it in that verse. Notice that it's in the singular. Throughout verses 7 through 12, it's singular, not plural because Paul is pointing to sin as a condition not as a behavior what the law does is the law is not primarily concerned about your behaviors and revealing you to you it's primarily concerned about revealing the dark dynamic of the darkness within your condition the dark mass of self-absorption, decreative force, a hostile dark power that indwells and lives in every human being, the law is designed to reveal that to you. Theologians call it original sin or total corruption. Second, I want you to find that word covet, justness, Or the 10th commandment, look at it in verse 8. The literal translation goes like this. So you could literally write this in. The the interpretive decision was to make it the 10th commandment. Okay, here's how it goes. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of mega desires. 
epi, over, desires. So Paul picks the 10th commandment because it's the root of all sin. In other words, the 10th commandment is why we break the other nine. A Roman scholar, James Dunn, cites that in Jewish tradition, covetousness is the root of all sin. It's the core and sum of the law. So sin at its root is a mega desire. Sin at its root is a normal desire that's gone epi, it's gone over. Sin at its root is a, is a desire that's gone godlike. It's a desire or desires that try to take God's place as Lord, God, and Savior. Is there anything wrong with the desire for love and acceptance? Anything wrong with the desire to be liked and to have friends? Is there anything wrong with the desire for sex and success and to do a good job and to have no conflict in your relationships, to get eight hours of sleep for the Rangers to win? Is there anything wrong with these desires? The answer is no. Those desires are part of the fabric of being a human being. Those desires are actually in you as an image bearer. Those desires are part of the divine design. But when our desires go mega, if we have a mega, epi, godlike desire for love and acceptance, we will either be in controlling relationships or codependent relationships depending upon the inclination of the personality. If you're a controlling person, you go into those relationships controlling. If you're more of a be controlled by person, you enter into codependent relationships when this mega desire for love and acceptance is present. It can also trap you in abusive relationships. If you tend to be controlled, you enter into these abusive relationships because your desire is mega for love and acceptance. It actually prevents you from having loving relationships and deep friendships. The mega desire for success or financial security, it always produces drivenness and exhaustion and deep insecurity. And then when there are successes, it produces a sense of superiority. And then when there are failures, it produces this trauma of shame that's almost irrecoverable. If you have a mega godlike desire to, to not suffer and to not have pain emotionally or physically, it can produce all kinds of addictions to avoid pain emotionally, physically. This desire, it, when, you, when you have a mega desire to not suffer, and to not have pain. When you do, you blame. You have to blame someone. And if you're keeping up the end of the deal, you're going to blame God or you're going to blame others. If you're not keeping up the end of your deal, you're going to blame yourself. It also feels bitterness because when it feels rage and revenge and unforgiveness. When people cause you to suffer, sin against you, and you have a mega desire, and I have a mega desire to not suffer, to not be in pain, bitterness, rage, revenge, right? So the law reveals you to you, first by defining sin, and second, by showing us and making us feel our condition of sin, that it's real. 
So Paul is calling us to enter to the arena. Enter into the arena, he's saying. He's calling us to bleed in the arena. So why in the world would any of us want to get in that arena? Right now, who's ready? Who wants to get in there? All right, Brent's ready. Do you know what's so fascinating is that Paul knows that no one really wants to get in this arena, that we need encouragement to get in the arena, so he gives us his own historical, audiobiographical relationship to the law, and he shares his own personal breakdown. He bleeds in front of all of us. Why would anyone want to enter in the arena? Paul says, through his own personal experience, verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now you've got to ask yourself, how could Paul have ever been alive apart from the law? Paul came into a culture and a people that were under the law. He was trained and instructed from the law from childbirth to childhood to adulthood and on to being a very trained religious Pharisee. (laughs) There was never a time in Paul's life when he was alive apart from the law. So what does alive, being alive apart from the law, mean to Paul? Keller answers it this way. There was a time for Paul with the law all around him when he thought he was a good person. I was alive to the law. He was alive to the fact that he thought he kept God's law. He thought that he never did covet or that he had very few incidences of covetousness in his life, that he had very few incidences of idolatry and adultery, that he didn't steal, and he didn't tell lies, and he didn't not rest in God, and he didn't dishonor and displease his parents. There was a time for Paul with the law all around him, trained in it, measured, memorized it, instructing and teaching others when he was alive, apart from the law. He thought he was a good person with the law all around him. And then verse 9 happened. When the commandment came, and that means when the commandment hit home, when the commandment hit his heart, when the commandment revealed him to him. Continuing in verse 9, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And now Paul sees himself clearly for the first time. He now has done and is experiencing something absolutely cosmic. He sees himself rightly. I'm a sinner. And this is not just a one-time experience. Because at the end of his life, he's going to say, I am the chief of sinners. But there was a beginning. And he is saying, I am I have all kinds of mega desires in me, all kinds of desires that are seeking and are taking God's place as Lord and God and Savior. Nothing, he's going to say later on in this passage, nothing good lives within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He's going to say, I deserve to die. I can't save myself. In verse 9, we get a picture of Paul bleeding. In verse 9, Paul is experiencing a breakdown. 
Paul Zoll, he's an author, he's a theologian, he's a church leader, he's a pastor, he's a speaker, and he's pretty popular. And I love what he says. He says to a bunch of pastors, and he says, look, just get your nervous breakdown over with quick. Just get it over with. Tongue in cheek. We need, through the law, and this is what I think Brene Brown, now I understand what she was saying. She was saying she has this title where we looked at it, I think last week, where she says she has a breakdown, but she put a line through breakdown and put awakening right by it. Because every breakdown in the arena is really an awakening. Every breakdown by the law is really a resurrection. Because what happens is this, is that Paul, for the first time, is able to see I am a coveter. And because he's able to see that he's a coveter, he now sees that Jesus loves coveters. And that Jesus took all his mega desires to the cross and actually became them for the first time in his life, because he knows that he's a coveter, he starts to see at the same time that Jesus did not covet for him. And he now sees that Jesus kept the law for him, that Jesus' righteousness is now his righteousness, and he will not, and we will not see that until we see we're not. So Paul is experiencing a healing in the midst of a breaking. Paul's dying to himself, but he's coming alive in another. Paul's dying to his performance, but he's coming alive in the performance of another. Paul's dying, or he's breaking down before the law, but he's being healed by the grace of God. Paul is bleeding, and he's never been healthier. So the law reveals you to you, and then the, drives us to Jesus. And at Jesus, we find healing and we find help and we find strength and we get put back together again. So submit to the law's revealing work in your life. I think the application, that does, he doesn't give us any sort of a- immediate application here, but I think it's intuitive and I think it's inferred. And that is, where is that happening in your life? Submit to the revealing work of the law in your life. So I would think of it this way. Where are you trying to prove and protect yourself right now? Enter the arena instead. Where are you blaming and accusing others? Enter the arena instead. Where do you think you're alive apart from the law? Where do you think you're a good person? Enter the arena. Where are you self-atoning like where are you trying to beat yourself up because of your sins and your mistakes it's it's not that you're going into the arena you're maintaining you're being a spectator but now you're you're turning the wages of sin upon you and you're trying to self-atone and self-hate and self-loathe and beat yourself up enter the arena where are you numbing yourself Where are you trying to escape? Enter the arena. 
And this one's very, very important too, I think for, for mental health realities. Where, where are you building up horrible psychological defenses trying to protect yourself from seeing how sinful you really are? Enter the arena. Submit to the laws revealing work in your life so you can generally grasp Jesus' saving work for you. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how strong the man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Enter the arena. Enter the arena.